Smashed into the net by Kylian Mbappe. Oh, Benyera, beautifully done. Cornet finds Dembele. The first touch is good. The second is deadly. Neymar still. Oh, my word, what a goal. Golovin. Lovely finish. Oh, yes, delivery. Gendouzi's header. Here's an opportunity, Sanchez. Outrageous goal from Gael Kakuta. Fire again. And Dolberg. Messi again. This time, maybe Messi's done it. In a week in which the top four all won, there was a seven-goal thriller in the capital as the M&M insured PSG finished a miserable week on a heart-stopping high, but they're still looking over their shoulder as Marseille, in a five-goal thriller of their own, Monaco and Lens continued to hunt down the stuttering champions. We're going to have a look at that and a whole lot more, including your last chance to win a Paris Saint-Germain Lionel Messi jersey. That's right, the World Cup winning captain was up to his old tricks on Sunday and you could soon be strutting around with the famous jersey on your back like the man himself. We're going to look at all the action from match day 24 and ahead to next weekend's Classique, quite possibly the most important Ligue 1 Classique in living memory. I'm your host Robbie Thompson for this one, still deputising for Ian Holyman and I'm very pleased to say I'm joined for today's show by CBS Viacom's French football correspondent Jonathan Johnson, how are you going, JJ? Yeah, doing very well, thanks. And yourself, uh, obviously coming down after that high of uh, Sunday. <laughs> to be honest, I don't really relish those early wake-ups and the trips to the park, but this one uh, certainly made it worthwhile. Well, I, I can tell you what, JJ, when you live on the other side of the planet, 11 o'clock in the evening kickoff, and the early Sunday kickoff is just about perfect. I was at the local football here in the early evening, caught the train back home, flicked on the telly, and was able to watch uh, Paris Saint-Germain in action at a very reasonable hour, much better than 3 o'clock in the morning or, <laughs> or 6 o'clock in the morning. So, look, what's, uh, what works for one, uh, one man's pain is another man's joy, or whatever that, that saying <laughs> is. We have uh, another less regular but uh, equally very special guest in Baptiste Renault from the very aptly named Classique podcast that delves into the history of French football. And he will share his expert view on all things Ligue 1 from his perspective, which is Baptiste on the other side of the English Channel. Our one Frenchman lives in England. Yeah, hi, hi, Robbie. Yeah, what a what an exciting day of football yesterday. And uh, yeah, twenty five goals. Can't wait to dissect them and and can't wait for next week's classic. That's going to be very exciting. It is. That's going to be a massive match. We're going to have a look at all of that and see who could possibly be in or out because. That Paris Saint-Germain injury list is getting longer and longer. It seems the annual discussion we have every every February, March. Stay with us right to the end of the show and that chance to win the Leo Messi jersey and check us out on all your podcast platforms as well as all the video highlights of every weekend's action on league1.com. It's on YouTube as well. Like, subscribe, follow and recommend. We're on Twitter at league one underscore ENG for English as well, or at League and World. And uh, make sure you get on there and rate us. Well, we're going to start, and where else would we start, than at the Parc des Princes. It was the early 1pm kickoff time for just the 10th time in Paris Saint-Germain's history. They were not prime time. With the matches normally kicking off at 8 or 9 o'clock at night in France, it was the 1 o'clock Early kickoff, as we just said, perfect if you're watching from Australia. Andy Scott was calling all the action. Bappe 
somehow manages to find a way through two Lille defenders and force the ball into the net. That is why you have to play Kylian Mbappe, even if he's not quite fully fit. The determination to put that ball in the net. Look at this, uh, not really any options available to him. His path to goal seems to be completely blocked by Diakite and Thiago Jallo, and he just says, get out of the way. Plays it between the legs of Jallo and forces the ball into the net. That is uh, quite remarkable from Kylian Mbappe. It's his 26th goal in all competitions this season. Marco Venati to Neymar. Plays it to Nuno Mendes. PSG on the offensive again, Neymar's touch was a bit heavy. Neymar does score the follow-up set up by Vitinha, and it's 2-0 already. All a bit too easy for Paris Saint-Germain, really. It was a bad first touch here by Neymar, actually. It was nearly an assist for Vitinha. He had the presence of mind to get that ball back to the Brazilian. With Lucas Chevalier coming out, diving at his feet. That's really clever play from the Portuguese midfielder. Neymar tucks in his 13th goal in the league this season. Cabela will take it. Big man up from the back. He's played short to Bamba. This is Andre Gomez. Ball flighted in and Lille do get one back. A completely free header. Bafodi Diakite grabs the ball and heads back to the halfway line. Lille want to get on with it. Marco Verratti feeds the pass through. But Neymar, it's fallen for Messi. Tried to play the clever pass in behind Euro. He made the block. There's a problem here for Neymar now then. He is uh, crying in pain. It's his uh, right ankle, which he has felt go there. It's a kick that he took, I think, from Andre. I think it was completely innocuous. Neymar is being applauded off here by the Parc des Princes crowd. Cleared away by Fabian Ruiz, and uh, a penalty has been given here. A yellow card shown to Marco Verratti and Lille. We're going to have the chance to get back on level terms, having been 2-0 down. Well, Marco Verratti has a little pull on the shirt of the Lille player, and I think Jallo goes down very easily here. Jonathan David will take the penalty for Lille amid the jeers and the whistles of the Paris Saint-Germain supporters. Lille's leading scorer up against Donnarumma, tucks in the spot kick and it's 2-2. Lille have come from 2-0 down. And Paris Saint-Germain's problems piling up. And they could be through here with Bamba. Bamba from the angle, what a fantastic finish from Jonathan Bamba. And Lille have come from 2-0 down to lead by three goals to two. This is incredible. Kylian Mbappe and everybody inside the Parc des Princes is stunned at what has happened here in the second half. Christophe Galtier's team crumbling. The credit should go to Lille because it was a brilliant ball forward by Andre Gomez. Fine run by Jonathan Bamba. We've got goal side of Juan Bernat. He still had an awful lot of work to do. But it was a terrific hit past Gianluigi Donnarumma. Just four minutes of the 90 remaining. It's not been the onslaught that you would usually get from Paris Saint-Germain in these circumstances. Messi's ball forward was looking for Mbappe. Juan Bernat. 
Bernati, that's a good ball. Bernat Mbappe! He's equalised, it had to be him! Just when you thought it really wasn't going to be Paris Saint-Germain's day, with time running out, Mbappe gets his second of the game. It's not over yet. They'll still feel he can go on and win this game, maybe. Great play, Bernat, Verratti, Bernat, Mbappe, and Mbappe beating Chevalier at his near posts. Verratti again. Messi. Messi brought down by Andre, and it's going to be a free kick and a yellow card. Can Paris Saint-Germain find a winning goal right at the end of an extraordinary afternoon of football here? Lionel Messi with the free kick, which he won himself. Messi, it's gone in! Absolutely incredible! In the 95th minute! And the Paris Saint-Germain substitutes have uh, gone onto the field to celebrate with Messi and their teammates. Christophe Galtier is down there as well. It's as though they've just won the league title. Well, it might be a massive step towards it. Messi, in the 95th minute, does what Messi does. The free kick in off the upright. And it's 4-3. That's what it meant to Christophe Galtier. What a game. Well, JJ, we'll start with you because you were there. And uh, what better place to be early on a Sunday if you're not in bed than at the Parc des Princes. All three Paris Saint-Germain superstars on the score sheet. It was a seesawing battle. PSG with a great start, as we just heard. And then it looked as though that three straight defeats was going to turn into four for a long time in that second half before, and we say this again about this time every year, a little bit of individual brilliance is what's sparing blushes at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can't recommend my experience from the match, which was uh, trying to uh, have a, a on-the-whistle report ready, uh, you know, in a game with such high drama. But I think what was, I mean, most impressive, if we can call it that, was that PSG managed to pack kind of the story of their season into 90 minutes. You had that really good start, then you had that kind of faltering uh, middle bit, and then, I don't know, hopefully there's going to be a bit of late drama to, to finish the season uh, on a high. But uh, no, I mean, it was really, I mean, there, there were so many contrasting, uh, you know, sort of factors and, and interesting little storylines uh, going on in that game. Uh, you know, PSG actually made a pretty poor start. Lille had an opportunity, made Donnarumma make a save inside of 60 seconds. I then came on really strong, got the two goals, obviously Mbappe coming back strong after his injury, although he did have that kind of lull before he got the second goal. But then it just went to bits, uh, you know, after Diakite managed to, to head home, PSG's defense still looking poor. Uh, you know, Neymar then picking up the, the injury at the beginning of the second half. You got the, the I guess, guess the debated penalty, we could call it, because there was a bit of confusion at the stadium. People didn't know if it was because Ruiz's hand had brushed the ball, which you could see in the replays. Nobody actually could see, uh, you know, Verratti's shirt pull until a replay much, much later uh, after Jonathan David had already scored. Uh, you know, and then you get Lille going ahead, you know, kind of PSG becoming their own worst enemy. And then, yeah, you had that sort of, I think it was like an eight minute period at the end where Mbappe gets the equaliser. I mean, once that free kick gets given in that kind of territory, you know, for Messi, who really had barely factored in that game, I think there was only going to be one outcome. And 
Fantastic drama. Uh, you know, do I do I feel more confident about PSG's chances ahead of Le Classique this weekend and against Bayern Munich in the second leg? Not particularly, but I do think it's that kind of performance showing that kind of spirit that they can actually rally around in the next couple of weeks and try and salvage something from their season in terms of their continental aspirations, that is. Well, JJ, you make a very good point and one that's been raised again and again, which is the fact that this Paris Saint-Germain side it's very hard to to create a solid, dominating, tactical approach to matches with this side. For whatever reason, you play with three superstars who, who can't defend very well. Every season, you seem to bring in four or five new midfielders and expect them to dominate the match alongside Marco Verratti. Uh, there were players missing again. There was no Ashraf Hakimi. There was no Marquinhos um, in the centre of defence as well, who, by all accounts, his contract extension is is signed, sealed, and delivered, but they're just waiting for the right moment to communicate it, um, which may have been on the back of a seven-goal thrilling victory if he'd played, but he didn't. So clearly, maybe Paris Saint-Germain's powers that be are hoping that will be after a fantastic result in the next couple of weeks. We'll have to wait and see on that one. Baptiste, it was the 100th meeting between these two sides, so a little bit of, of history there as well. And I talk about the tactics that, that people criticise this PSG side, but is not giving the ball to Kylian Mbappe the best tactic in world football at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've got to play to your strength, and he's an undeniable strength. Why wouldn't you, why wouldn't you pass to people like Mbappe or Messi who can create out of nothing? I think the, the problem for PSG has always been and remains what happens when they don't have the ball and what kind of intensity they want to put into, uh, into their press and into their defending, and in, into into that hard work that you need to deliver to actually obtain a good result, especially when a team like Lille turned up and had real ambition from the get-go, right? So, um, you know, it was really unsurprising in a way that it was such a challenge to PSG. They seemed to um, have ebbs and flows to their games, and actually they had a good, you know, after the first Lille opportunity, they had a good sort of 10, 15 minutes, and certainly towards the end when they pushed and were backed by the Pac de Pass, to be fair. Um, they they really went for it. But in between those two those two moments of the game, there was a lot of emptiness and just an absence. For me, there's, there's a soft center. There's no real leadership in midfield. Verratti can't be everywhere. The fact that Kim Pembe was named captain I, think, captain, I think, is symbolic of everything that's wrong with PSG. He's somebody, in my view, who's been distinctly average at best for a number of years and hasn't progressed, but he's being given a status and and the armband because of what he represents more than his performance on the pitch. So um and he, when you put all that together, of course it was going to be uneven and they and they showed that. And I think that's a continuity to what their season has been and what the last few years have been. But but if you wanna if you want to take a positive spin on it, they did come up with a win and they did show some desire towards the end to to get the result and the crowd backed them. So that's that's a positive. Well, I think I think they're definitely positives to take out of this because let's not forget that the side is changing so much. I mean, it was only a second start this season in back-to-back matches for Pembele. But after three defeats bundled out of the cup, we know the pressure that's on this side every time the Champions League knockout phase swings around. JJ... They did show great character, particularly in those last moments. And, and you talk about a Lionel Messi who looked out of the game for long periods. And I agree, especially once orphaned of, of Neymar, because those two, they do have a telepathic link in their play. They look for each other the whole time. 
as soon as Neymar went off, and I, I'd like your, I mean, that's definitely a talking point as well, looking ahead to the Classic, which we'll do in a moment. But the fact that Messi celebrated that goal like he did, that Mbappe, that the crowd and everything, after the week they've had, I think that did show a bit of character and does show a potential that this side always has, which we saw in the last half hour against Bayern Munich, which is for the big games, and I'm not saying Lille is not a big game, but it's not on that same level, they do step up. And these individualities can step up as well, don't you think? I do. Uh, you know, I do agree with that. <clears throat> and I think as well, actually, the way that the fixture list, um, you know, stands for PSG at this moment in time probably benefits them ahead of the Bayern Munich game because, you know, Lille, like you said, it's, it's not an easy team. OK, you can maybe debate whether they're at Champions League uh, level at the moment. But, you know, with a coach like Fonseca, it was always going to be a tough uh, you know, team to go up against. They're going up against a Nantes side as well, who are in European competition, you know, Marseille away. Is probably as good pre- good a preparation, you know, for for the trip to Bayern Munich as there possibly can be, uh, you know, in Liga. So, you know, I do think that there are positives to sort of this this difficult run that PSG have been given, in that it's demanding that they they raise their game, uh, you know. But also, you mentioned the pressure. It's certainly something you know that kind of comes across, uh, you know, certainly did uh, on Sunday during the game when you've got Luis Campos coming down from the stands berating the players once they fell behind at three two. Uh, you know, that is as good a sign as any that, you know, the pressure really is starting to to, to be put on the likes of Galtier and Campos. Now, understandably so as well, you know, Campos, uh, you know, oversaw what was a very underwhelming end to the January transfer window. Certainly, uh, you know, it's understandable that he'd be receiving a bit of flack, uh, you know, for that, not having better prepared, perhaps, you know, some reinforcements that PSG needed. I mean, Baptiste spoke really well uh, about PSG's sort of uh, you know, middling midfield. It, it was a really, really funny game because I felt there were some moments where Ruiz and Vitinha looked like they rediscovered their early season form, looked really good. Vitinha teed up Neymar, uh, you know, for, for the second goal. And then suddenly they just went to absolute bits, completely disappeared. There was no structure. And again, PSG were kind of left in this position that they've really been since the days of Thiago Motta, Blaise Matuidi and Verratti, where you're just solely looking at the Italian for, you know, to, to basically provide the the creativity, the impetus from uh, from midfield. Uh, I mean, I think as well, Robbie mentioned a really interesting point about Neymar and Messi, the telepathic understanding that they have. This game was actually also a kind of a window into that kind of frustrated relationship that Mbappe and Neymar have, because despite the fact that we know there's been sort of, you know, these perceived jabs uh, at one another in the press of late, obviously Mbappe, what he said after the Bayern game, and then Neymar being photographed, you know, uh, in McDonald's, uh, you know, having played poker as well, Galtier was not necessarily favorable towards the fast food elements of it, but said that he's well within his rights to, to be playing poker. I mean, if you look at some of the stats, uh, you know, Opta delivered a great one uh, during the game. Neymar's delivered 17 assists to Mbappe in league on the joint highest tally of assists from one player to another since Opta started collecting data along with Di Maria to Cavani. You know, so obviously there is a level of creativity there. You know, they can play together. They can coexist when they want to. But I think stretching it to the three of them kind of hamstrings PSG a little bit. But, uh, you know, I do think, uh, you know, they have shown that they have an appetite to to try and salvage something from this season, which, you know, they're now going to have to do. And it seems like everybody has finally woken up to this danger that, uh, you know, PSG's season could be overcome March, which we have seen in the past. And it's funny that Robbie mentioned uh, Marquinhos' contract extension. Remember, 
I think we all recall how long it took for PSG to confirm Thomas Tuchel's contract extension a couple of years ago because of that unexpected exit against Manchester United in the Champions League. So I do think, uh, you know, PSG have a crucial couple of weeks ahead of them. And although this performance maybe is not the one that necessarily sets them in the best stead, certainly this testing run of games that they have should get them up to the kind of level they need to be at for that buying clash. That that Luis Campos coming down onto pitch side. Now, was that berating players or was that berating just officials, footballing gods, um, seagulls, anything he could anything he could find down there um, on the side of the Parc des Princes? Because it was pretty pretty extreme behaviour from a sporting director, and and there are certain rules in place. You know, you, you've got to say who's on the bench, who's allowed on the bench. And I was looking at the official team sheet; his name was not there. His name was not on the the list of people allowed on the additional bench, which is your your sort of your substitute physios and your substitute um, managerial staff as well. So he wasn't on any of that. He walks down there and he is is he berating players or fourth official and and referees assistants a lot of the time. And and Baptiste and JJ, I'll open this up to both of you. If he's berating players, I don't think that's going to go down very well in that dressing room. Because he's not a Zidane or a, a Brazilian Ronaldo or someone who's played the game at the highest level or a Didier Deschamps who can berate a player. Players do not like being berated by people who did not win the World Cup. You know, To berate a player on the football pitch, you have to be the coach or someone who is untouchable. And I'm, I'm not sure a sporting director is that untouchable. What do you sporting think? Sporting advisor, Robbie. <laughs> Sporting advisor, not even. Yeah, he's got his own company, doesn't yeah. he? He's a consultant. I mean, honestly, I, I'd, I'd love to hear Baptiste's thoughts on this, but just something else to bear in mind as well. It's actually the second week in a row that we know that Campos has gotten mm. involved with some of the players because Neymar was speaking ahead of the Champions League clash, admitted mm. that there was sort of, uh, you know, a bit of a spat After with, the Monaco uh, game. with Campos in Monaco. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it does suggest that, you know, there is a lot of pressure suddenly on Campos. We know that he has this kind of, um, you know, freelance um, gig going on where he can work with Celta Vigo and PSG, which you can imagine obviously takes up a lot of his time. Uh, you know, but I, I mean, I think in terms of what he was getting angry about, yes, I'm sure it was a mixture of everything, but the fact that he appeared to be there on the touchline shouting at the players, I don't think it's going to, you know, work wonders with this group of players who were already pretty upset about his intervention after the the Monaco game. And let's not forget as well in Monaco, you had Kim Pembe, who'd only played 10 minutes since his return from injury, having to basically appease the travelling fans who were just so irate about the way PSG's season was collapsing. I think the problem with PSG has always been that this is a dressing room that doesn't like being berated. I think that's also been part of the problem, partially. So the, these are these are top-class footballers, and I agree with you, Robbie. You know, the likes of Neymar, Mbappe, Messi, what are they going to listen to? You know, the sporting advisor who's never touched a blade of grass before on a, at a high level but but at the same time I think PSG has been looking for years for that sort of legitimacy and authority beyond the dressing room because it's been a self-managing dressing room for a little while and previous managers who have had a lot of um, power before and who have had a lot of uh, know-how and nows have found themselves mar- marginalized despite their ability and their character if you look at somebody like Thomas Tuchel if you look at Emery um, if you look at Pochettino, these are good. These are all good managers, right? Who know how to manage players, and yet they found themselves cast aside by the dressing room. 
So I think, you know, it was a very, very visible frustration. And I think it was very visible frustration from somebody who knows that he has been given a lot of power at the club as well, because at the end of last season, Al Khalifi finally stepped back from football activities after, you know, running running that side quite poorly, in my opinion. And and Campos and Galtier have a pass together and have been brought in as a duo who can who can sort things out. So I think there was there was an element of pressure. There was also an element of trying to back maybe Galtier because they they are so well connected and and they come as a package deal in a sense. So um, is it is it as bad as it looked? It didn't look great, but normally in theory, great dressing rooms kind of react. Um, should react well to to adversity, and whether that was adversity or not, we'll we'll f- we'll find out soon. Buy one, get one free. Bring in <laughs> Luis Campos, get a Christophe Galtier along for the ride. I I I agree. I think um I think there was a lot of pressure on Christophe Galtier at the moment. We know there's been a lot of pressure on Luis Campos. You talk about the the January transfer window and the deals that fell through. By all accounts not through any fault of, of Paris Saint-Germain's for Ziyech anyway, where, where, where Chelsea just couldn't send through the right documents in time, which, which is a subject for another pod because I've, I've lived that from the inside transfer deadline day as well. And it is amazing how many deals will get done, despite all the rumours for weeks and weeks and weeks, will get done between 11.35 and midnight on the last day of the transfer window. I mean, what is that about? But anyway, that's that's for another day. But I do wonder whether whether Campos coming down to the sideline berating players after what happened in Monaco is just that there is so much pressure on Galtier and he has to protect that part of his interest as well. And maybe he feels Galtier has to have a working relationship with these players. I'm a one step removed. I can come down here and say what I know Galtier wants to say. But again... If you're acting as part of this duo, it um, I'm not sure if it strengthens or weakens Galtier's position at all. I, I, I don't think it's a great look at any rate for a side that's uh, heading into its biggest month of the season, has just had two weeks of it, and it hasn't gone swimmingly well. They almost made it four defeats in a row for the first time in two decades. They did show character, they did show promise, and they, in the end, got a thrilling victory thanks to moments of magic from their three superstars and have set up a, a, a mouth-watering proposition of taking on second-placed Marseille in a week's time. Let's have a quick look at a few of the other results that happened over the weekend. Brest went down to Monaco, so Monaco keeping the pressure on Marseille. They were very briefly up to second place. Golovin continuing his scoring form, Ben Yedder, and a rare goal for Boadu, the Dutchman, who uh, arrived last season and has really failed to impress consistently. He had that chance last season, a run in the side, didn't work out for him, but Monaco have now scored in 34 consecutive Liga matches. That is a current record in Europe's top five leagues as well. Well, Monaco have been in fine winning form. Wren got back to winning ways, and that was important for them as well. Arno Calimwendo getting both goals as they defeated Clermont by two goals to nil. Now, we've had a look at one half of next weekend's Classique. Let's have a look at the other half, the side that we'll be hosting it. They were on the road this weekend to Toulouse, and Angus Tarode was calling all the action. 
Toulouse come forward, it's a good run. Decent start from Toulouse, playing through the smoke. Nice turn by the captain. The Yahara, nice ball in and there's the first goal! Two minutes, 17 into the game! And it's Tice Dallinger who gets another one. What a cracking start to the game for Toulouse. Dallinger coming up with his ninth goal of the season. Lovely build-up. Look at the run from Dallinger. Kolasinac had no idea he was coming. Brilliant centre-forward play. Corner in from Unda. Back post, all the way across. Surely! And it's Mbemba who scores! Non-stop pressure from the away side at the beginning of the second period pays off. That talk at half-time seems to have done Marseille a world of good from Igor Tudor. Ruo missed it through his legs and Mbemba just belted it into the back of the net in joy. Mbemba is in there again, he's already scored in this game though, not with his head. And Bukal only gets it as far as Under, And the Turkish international has shot Marseille in front and it's a complete turnaround in this game. Close. Good work though by Nicolaisen again. Oh, that's Paulo Genduzzi in the middle of the park. Nuno Tavares trying to go past Desta. Does and scores! That's the points for Marseille. And after being dominated in the first half, they've taken to lose a part in the second. And the Portuguese defender, fed by another former Arsenal man, smashes it into the near post. Manchevich has gone behind him, back in by Suaro, back post. Oh, yes! Lovely goal. He's only been on the pitch for a couple of moments, but Anaiwu has suddenly given the home fans a little bit of hope. Well, that was hit with Venom. Only his second goal of the season. But he left Paul Lopez with little or no chance of stopping that. OK, so, gentlemen, they went behind early Marseille to that Dalinga goal before Tavares, Under and Chancel and Bemba once again on the score sheet. Tudor is doing a brilliant job. He's got that side really humming. Baptiste, we'll come to you first. Toulouse have been a side showing a bit of form. This could have been one of those ones, one eye on the classic coming up. You don't want to take your eye off the ball. They almost did at the start. It looked like Toulouse could be onto something. And when you saw the reaction of Tudor at the final whistle, I mean, he, he was almost baby-shaking his assistant coaches um, at, at the full-time whistle. You could see what it meant to this side. And he's a big man. He can do it as well. Baptiste, how did you see this one? Well, the Brentford of Ligue 1 really took on Marseille, I thought, in the, in the, throughout the game. Um, I've got a lot of time for Toulouse. I think the way they've structured the club after going down is, has been great. And they have, in my opinion, one of the best midfield trio in Ligue 1 with Spearings, De Jager and Van den Boomen. Uh, so uh, I was pleasantly surprised that they really had a go uh, at Marseille, especially in the first half. And the, I think they suff suffocated Marseille's midfield and... The atmosphere was electric, but I have to say the reaction post-half time from Marseille was amazing. I mean, straight from the kickoff, they just they just went at it again. The pressing was really high. Under came to life, and we know how uh, he can be a magician one minute and <laughs> and be a pub team player the next. But he he turned up in the second half, and and they they were just um, so very difficult to live with for for Toulouse, who didn't really change their setup. 
uh, and yet found themselves asphyxiated in the second half. Uh, I think it really showed the reaction of a team that really believes in what they're doing. And Tudor, after a difficult start, his players seem to really back him and they love the system and it and it's working. So um, there's there's a lot of enthusiasm ar around Tudor. He seems to have the passion that's required for any Marseille manager and he's got he's got his players um, really buying into into the project. JJ, when you talk about a coach, and, and I don't want to take this discussion only to be about Igor Tudor, but but there's a very good point. I mean, you've got Alexi Sanchez, who's who's playing wonderfully well in that striking role in recent weeks. Valentin Rangier looks like the player we thought he could become, but five years ago, and now he's now he's playing this. He's got a, a Genduzzi, who's in in the France team now, who's who who's struggled for so many years. We've got he's brought in players that we didn't expect so much of, and he's bringing out the best of them, and that's what a coach does so well. And when you look at other clubs and you think, well, on paper, they should be doing really well, this is a, a team where, on paper, these players are bringing out their best, and that, I think, is a, a great credit to him. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I think that Tudor actually, uh, you know, despite a, a rocky start, is actually a very, very good fit for, for this OM side, not just in terms of the players, but also in terms of the club, I mean, Marseille is a very fiery, emotional club. You have to have very thick skin to be able to thrive as a, as a manager. But equally, if you're really hot-headed, it doesn't necessarily work because you tend to, to get carried away by the emotion at times. Tudor seems to have that right combination of being emotional enough to be sort of in a, with a strong connection to the fans, but not so emotional that he can't make uh, you know the cool-headed decisions that he needs to make at the right times. So much was made coming into this season about the fact that Tudor was shaping up to, to move away from this reliance on Dimitri Payet. Few people talk about that right now because of the way that he has turned this team into, you know, an actual team that functions, plays together collectively, uh, you know, and produces some fantastic football at times, which, I mean, I, I don't really want to criticize an OM team that has been sort of improving over the last couple of years, but they were very, very reliant on, on Payet. He was more than a talisman for them. And, you know, I think when Tudor came in, he saw that, you know, he couldn't just rely on one aging, albeit very good, still technically player who was coming off the back of an injury and had to make them more of uh, more of a collective, uh, you know, and I think finally the Marseille fans and also those players as well who were perhaps you know, wondering if uh, the club had made the right call at the time, uh, you know, are now starting to buy into those methods. And this kind of game was the perfect example of that, because like Baptiste said, I mean, you know, some fantastic words on Toulouse. Toulouse, who I was really impressed by when they came to, to Paris a couple of weeks ago, I think having Van den Boomen back in that midfield adds a lot, uh, you know, and in terms of the way the club is structured as well, another club that has, you know, identified a way that they want to play brought in the right kind of players for that. Obviously, a, a big, big blow earlier in the week when we found out that Brendan McFarlane uh, has left his role and it's going to be Julia Arpizu uh, overseeing that uh, head of recruitment role at least for the foreseeable future. Uh, you know, but the way that that team is set up right now, they play some fantastic stuff and they're looking upwardly mobile and really gave Marseille, uh, you know, a difficult game, some fantastic goals as well from both sides. But for, you know, going back to, to Marseille specifically, that game against PSG in the Coupe de France a week or so ago was another really good example of the way that, uh, you know, Marseille are able to come out really, really lay into, you know, some of these better teams, uh, you know, and, and, and look to hurt them, but do so in a collective way, not just relying on, you know, bits of individual brilliance. And I think when you look at 
the way that lots of different players have chipped in with goals or assists, there's no sort of out-and-out goal scorer that Marseille rely on now. Same as well, I guess you can say, for like an assist provider, you have these guys. I mean, like Baptiste said, like Chengiz Under, who sometimes chips in with a goal, a fantastic performance. But when he drifts out, you know, there are other guys that come and chip in. I mean, Tavares playing on the left has scored a number of really crucial goals so far this season. And I just think, you know, Tudor you know, was a really, really good pick by Longoria. And we're now really starting to see the benefits of that surprise change because, you know, many people were up in arms when Sampaoli was replaced, uh, you know, a few months ago. But now Marseille really genuinely look like potential title challengers. And if they were to take more points off of PSG uh, next weekend, you know, we could be in for a fantastic title race finale. Well, the time has come to look ahead then to next weekend's Classic. There were so many segues there, but I think perhaps, well, I'll throw another one in there. The Tavares, that's six goals this season for him now. I think I saw on Opta that he's the the second highest scoring defender in a season for Marseille since Daniel van Boyten, the Dutchman. Now that would be going back nearly 20 years, I think, to, to, to the old Marseille days when they really did try and mix it with Paris Saint-Germain in these classics. Um, Baptiste, we saw, and I wonder, what do you think the effect of that Coupe de France victory will be on on the match coming up? Because the atmosphere was sensational in the stadium. I mean, the Marseille fans almost were in disbelief that they were actually going to get a win at home over Paris Saint-Germain for the first time in 11 years. It happened, and now, that was only 10 days ago, now they play them again in the league with the perspective of closing to within two points at the top of the standings. I mean, all of a sudden, there is going to be massive expectation on this Marseille side. And that, perhaps, is something they haven't had to deal with recently. You're right, Robbie. And I think that's also the refreshing thing about Tudor is he he wants that pressure. He is ambitious. I think we've seen that in the way that Marseille have set up both in the league, but even in Europe. I mean, I watched him in the Champions League this season and they really had a go at teams. Whilst in the past, there's always been a a slight inferiority complex at that level over the last 10 years for Marseille. And I I, I think the, uh, you know, Marseille know they're always going to be backed by a a feisty crowd at the Velodrome, especially for Le Classique. But this time, especially with with the Coupe de France win, like you said, this time there's a real belief that not only can they get a result, but that they should should go for the win and that they're well within their rights to consider themselves as equals to PSG. And we haven't seen that in Ligue 1, especially with Marseille in the Classic for, for a number of years. So I think that's the, that's the thing that Trudeau has changed. He has changed the mindset. And that's that goes with the style, which is relatively gung-ho and, and, um, and the fact that he plays players to their strength. You mentioned Nuno Tavares who I think is abysmal defensively, but what a great wing-back going forward. And that's what Tudor focuses on. He obviously gets him to work on the defensive side, but he will be looking uh, for what he delivers as an asset. And and he gets players to grow out of their roles, like Rongier and Chancel Mbamba, who's now an underlapping <laughs> right-sided centre-back and scores goals. So there's there's ambition there, there's desire, there's players who want to improve, and there's a club who backed by Longoria and now uh, Tudor, really thinks they, they belong there and it's going to make for a cracking game, I think. JJ, tactically, can we expect Marseille to use basically that blueprint from the from the cup game to take the game to Paris Saint-Germain, to, 
to try and press them at all moments throughout the entire game. I mean, physically, that cup win was impressive, the way they, they took the game to Paris and just didn't give them a second. And we've seen that in the past, but only from teams like Bayern Munich or Manchester City, who have been able to really impose that high-pressing game for 90 minutes. This Marseille side was able to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think... Um... Kind of the days leading up to this fixture are going to be absolutely crucial because right now we don't know who will be available to Galtier and I think that will probably shape the way that Marseille approach this because Nuno Mendes picked up an injury uh, in the win over Lille as did Neymar. I think they're both going to be reassessed sort of early to midweek uh, ahead of the game but if one of those two was to miss out that would be obviously you know that that would change the setup quite a lot because actually Galtier was getting towards uh, you know being able to name that 3-4-3 formation that served PSG pretty well over the first half of the season suddenly if he's not able to do that or if you put in a Bernat instead of Mendes for example you don't have the same width suddenly you know PSG look a lot different in terms of the way that Tudor wants to set up of course I think he will look at that game uh, you know recently and want to try and replicate some of that but also at the same time, I think there's probably going to be a recognition on Marseille's part that PSG might not be as vulnerable and as fragile as they were uh, for that Coupe de France match. And sort of they might be wary of poking this beast that suddenly, you know, sprung to life at the end of that game against Lille. So maybe there will be a little caution. I'm not necessarily sure that that would be the right way for Marseille to approach this because I'm still not convinced that PSG are, um, you know, infallible. Uh, you know, they have major defensive problems which Marseille will look to uh you know will look to exploit but um you know at the end of the day the the Marseille fans are going to demand no less than a repeat performance of that Coupe de France victory uh you know and I I expect Marseille to fly out of the trap so for PSG it's going to be about absorbing that pressure uh and then trying to hit Marseille on the break which actually uh you know is pretty much perfect preparation for that Champions League second leg against Bayern Okay, looking ahead to Le Classique, let's take a little trip down memory lane. I want your single greatest classic memory. Now, I suspect JJ and I are going to go with the Paris Saint-Germain victory. That's just, I'm just imagining that. Baptiste, I'm not sure. You've got a couple of Parisian <laughs> roots. Uh, I don't know which side of the fence uh, you want to be aligned to or, or, or accused <laughs> of, of standing on. But let's go with JJ first and I'll give you, well, I'll go first because I've got so many classic memories. I could go the, the season where Luis Fernandez was dancing on the side of the pitch after back-to-back 3-0 victories and just the, the passion. I actually showed the video of that to my partner earlier today, already getting excited about Le Classic. <laughs> but I'm going to go with the match um, when Fabrice Fiorez returned to the, to the Parc des Princes after signing for, for Marseille, because, I mean, the... the the banners in the crowd, there was there was a intimidating atmosphere inside the stadium, which I have never experienced anywhere. And the Parc des Princes could be a pretty intimidating um, place to go. And I've, I've traveled to football stadiums all over the world. I've, I've seen football in Cairo, in Istanbul, in, in the Netherlands, in England. I mean, I've seen in, in Ghana, I've seen some, some places where football can be northern Melbourne back in the suburbs, back in the old days. I mean, some pretty intimidating places to, to, to watch football. But that day, when Fiorez and Deu returned to the Parc des Princes, was something out of this world. And, and Paris Saint-Germain, there was a red card early in the game. Sylvain Armand was sent off. Uh, I think 
uh, Marseille scored the first goal in that one as well at the park. And no, Paris scored first and then they equalized. It was a, yeah. And then Edouard Cisse with the most miraculous winning goal and the, the place just erupted. It was, it was surreal, unbelievable and, uh, and just the most incredible day. So I will never forget that classic. There have been plenty more. I was at the cup final in 2006 as well. But let's go, JJ, your single, single moment. I'm kind of disappointed and happy that you mentioned that game at the same time because that was going to be my fondest memory. Uh, it actually was 1-0 PSG because you had that, it was that spell where Pauletta scored that amazing goal nearly from the corner flag. And then the following season, he scored another great goal against Barthez where he sort of cut in from the edge of the box and bent it in. Uh, as I recall, it was because I was there. I mean, funny to think that we were both there at the same time. That was my first season as a season ticket holder. But uh, as I recall, Marseille equalized. And then, yeah, Edouard Cisse blasted in that uh, that winner. But it was it was so much more than a match. You really got absorbed by the atmosphere. And I think if I was to go for another standout classic memory now, obviously since becoming uh, a member of the press, you don't sort of feel or live these games as a fan as much, uh, you know, because you're, you're sort of spoiled by all the football that you get to watch and enjoy. However, when PSG went to the velodrome, it was that time that Neymar got sent off. Marseille were two one up right until the final minutes, obviously no away fans at Stade Velodrome. And then Edinson Cavani steps up last kick of the game with that free kick to bend it past uh, Mondonda. I think that's right up there. I mean, I I I celebrate very few goals in the press box. It doesn't matter whether it's in Nigan, whether it's in the Champions League. It, you know, few really have the same kind of emotion that a goal like that has. You know, obviously PSG were on the verge of losing that unbeaten run against Marseille. So when Cavani held that in, I think that's probably right up there with some of my favourite memories of Le Classic. That was an unbelievable. That that became nicknamed Le Clim. <laughs> That that goal as well, the, the the air conditioner that just cooled everyone down inside that stadium in a second. Suddenly, no noise, just <laughs> incredible, unbelievable moment. Baptiste, what's yours? Uh, I was lucky enough to go to one at the Parc des Princes in 2009, and I think I just it's it's a personal. It was just a personal experience, but just getting the full on experience of being in the PSG stands, but quite close to the Marseille end. And Marseille won that day, 3-1 at the Parc des Princes. Uh, Zenden scored and then jumped on a jumped on a booth, which broke down under his weight. Uh, and then just getting the full experience of, you know, coming out of stands and getting tear gassed, you know, seeing a, seeing a locking eyes with the Marseille fans, giving me a, a coat throat gesture, you know, that kind of thing. So, uh, but I, I have to say, I've also got, obviously the Ronaldinho moments were, were special. I think those two games, those two three nils in quick successions, and I, I also remember, but that's from watching it not that long ago, is sort of the game that kick-started it all. And I think it's sort of 1993. It was sort 1993. of... 1993. Yeah, yeah. The butchery of the Parc des Princes. And you look at Dimeco and all those players, you know, tackling each other at the throats um, between two really great European sides at that time. And and uh, that's just fun to rewatch again just because how, of how ridiculous the, the, the engagement endeavor is. <laughs> That was those days where that's really where it was written the 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 history and the 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 cult of of these classiques between Marseille and Paris Saint Germain. They were the two best sides in France, two of the best sides in Europe back then as well, as you rightly say. And of course, there was the Basil Bolly header 
1993, which came just three days after they'd won the Champions League mm. uh, with that 1-0 victory over, over AC Milan. And then that header from Basil Bolly, who won the ball on the halfway line, passed it wide, it made it to a Bidi Pelé. He continued to charge forward, the cross in, and he headed it into the top corner from outside the box. And it went like a volley. I mean, it was... And, and you just see him running. And obviously, it was, there was still a lot of alcohol in the system because he just burst into tears <laughs> and crying as he, as he ran off towards a Vidi Pelé and almost, almost crushed him. And they were thinking, how can we do this? I mean, it turns out later that, you know, they'd bought a few results that season and one that got stripped of the league and then re- demoted to, to the second division in France. And that's also part of the history of, of this fixture and French football as well. But, but that single moment, and, and Paris Saint-Germain fans actually look back at that match. And when I say fans, the, the hardcore that travelled down that day, they went there to ruin Marseille's day, the fans. They went there to do whatever they could to ruin the, the Champions League party. And, uh, and they're quite proud of the fact that they managed to do that, by, by all accounts. Some of the, the, the history and the rumours and the, the legend of, of that away trip for Paris Saint-Germain fans is considering the team lost 3-1, I think, in the end and, and lost everything that season, was uh, interesting fan culture and the way it works. But that too is also part of this. We could go on and on about the Classic. My first Classic, I was involved in a, in a street war that went for about 45 minutes before kickoff at the Porte de Saint-Cloud, um, which was my real baptism of fire <laughs> as well. I couldn't... And that was has lived with me as well, those... And I wasn't... When I say involved in a street war, I wasn't picking up bits of stone and throwing them, but I was, I was caught up in a bit of the action and had to be very careful to... Uh, we've, we've all seen your tattoos, to Robbie. Yeah. You're, not, to the you're, not, you're not kidding anybody. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think we, we all have those kind of war stories. I yeah. too have experienced the Metro after PSG Marseille and uh, seen the undercover police whip out their, mm. uh, their tear gas. And yeah, can't recommend that part of the experience to anybody, but that atmosphere <laughs> before, you know, away fans were effectively banned in this game, it was out of this world and i've seen some great mm. atmospheres over the years but nothing compares to that sort of uh vitriol that rains down from the stands on the, the both sets of opposing players bring it on this sunday night in round 25 of league out fc lorient got back to winning ways that was an important one for them i don't know if their european tilt is uh back on but they certainly could do with that win and importantly first goals for Bomba Dieng, their new signing from Marseille, and also Romain Fevre, who uh, is back in Brittany after his uh, basically unhappy spell at Olympic Lyonnais, the, the former breast winger on the score sheet and looking like he's got a smile back in Lorient. Big game on Friday night, so Auxerre get up over Olympic Lyonnais as well. That was a huge result for Auxerre, who are down in the relegation zone. Um, they came from behind at home, Fantastic atmosphere as well. It was their first win since October. Um, And all of a sudden, I think they're on 18 points now in the league. They're climbing back towards uh, an idea that they could yet be saved this season, which certainly a few weeks ago was not looking the case. And there are a lot of teams down there, we talked about it last week, um, that could be going down. But that a huge win for them, 2-1 over Olympic Lyonnais. Now we're going to have a look at one more big clash with Lens versus Nantes with 
Callum Brown calling all the action. Full fan up. Delivery from him. Falter. Medina. Machado again. Well, he scored a screamer last week and he's just repeated the feat. What a hit once more from Diver Machado. The Colombian fullback. It was Medina's header. And he just rockets one on the right foot again. Lovely curling effort. And Alban Lafont with no chance. Fofana for Frankowski. His delivery. Girotto missed it. It's going to fall here for Adrian Thomason. And it's two for Lance. A quick fire double from the hosts. And Lance, who've been terrific at the back of late have fallen apart defensively great finish from Thomason it dropped him and that's on his left foot that's his first goal here for Lawrence at the Stad Ball Arts Sissoko driving forward from midfield now Moses Simon out on this left hand side cuts it back Floro Moli 2-1 what a strike that is from the Nantes forwards and he has a side with something to fight for in this game now his goal is after half an hour and looking like it was heading that way come half time as it finished in September but three goals in about seven minutes of football and a couple of screamers that one from Florent Molle off the crossbar and in sweet as a nut and not to have one back here. Game on. Well, this could be a counter-attack. David Pereira to Costa. Slips in Lois Openza. Cut back and it's going to be turned in. The two-goal cushion restored. And it's the unfortunate Charles Triore who sends that into the back of the net. The back of his own net. Lance concede 3-1 to Lance. So this match. Um, between a Nantes side that had impressed in midweek against Juventus, picking up a draw in Italy, massive result for them, turning back the clock to the good old European days of the Canaries. But Lens needed this win as well, and that can't be overlooked by any stretch. This was a Lens side that were winless in four coming into this one. They'd been overtaken by Marseille and Monaco. Um, they're six points ahead of Rennes now in fifth place, but this was a big win for them. Yes, over a Nantes side with one eye on Juventus. But let's talk about the goals. Baptiste, there were some spectacular strikes in this one. Even for Nantes, Florent Mollet, who's a... I'm a big fan and have been for, for years and years of Florent Mollet with a great goal. But how about Machado? That's back-to-back -back <laughs> screamers for him. Just a, ca just a casual right-footed strike from your left wing back <laughs> into the opposite corner. <laughs> Um, yeah, you know, very casual. Yeah, very casual. You know, great, great goals. Um, I was glad to see Thomason score as well. I think he's a sneaky good signing. I've been a huge fan of him and and of what he represented at Strasbourg. He's, I think, he's just one of the smartest players in Liga. Um, and it, you know, you could tell straight from the start that Lance, they just have automatisms in their sides, and they just have a particular way of playing, and and everybody was sort of fit 
and and they just knew they could find each other with their eyes closed despite a good effort from from Nantes. Um so I think that you know they'll be happier for that. The Mole goals came out of nowhere and um and not did you know not did get, have a go but uh Otherwise, I, th- I felt it was quite comfortable for Lens and the sort of game they needed, a tired side opposite them. Um, they got m- most of their key players back. Uh, they managed to bring in Openda off the bench to, to get some, some uh, miles under his legs. You know, it was the perfect year at the office for, for Franquez, but the, the basis of the structure he's built is just so, so impressive. Seiko Fofana almost scored what would have been another screamer in that match as well to add to his litany of screaming goals that he does. JJ, Nantes, they rested Ludovic Blas. Um, they didn't look really at the races in this one, but they're at home now against Juve. Um, first and foremost, the Bourgeois is a great stadium when that side is winning. It's going to be really, I said talk about turning back the clock, but Le Brigade Loire and the, the noise inside that stadium is going to be spectacular. Can they do it? against Juve? Uh, I'd love to hope that, uh, I'd love to think that they can. Uh, I mean, you talk about turning back the clock. It's a good way of putting it. Did you guys know that this was a Champions League, I think, semi-final back in 1996, mid-90s? Honestly, I mean, it's a game, you know, steeped in so much continental tradition. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of uh, of Uncle Antoine Comboare, uh, you know, obviously for his PSG pass, but what he's given Ligue 1 over the years, I think he's a fantastic character, very underrated manager, and I'm delighted to see him doing so well with Nantes. Unfortunately, it's not the best moment for Nantes at the moment in terms of the players being run into the ground. Also, the tragedy, which unfortunately uh, affected Ignatius uh, Ganago, uh, you know, with his daughter. Terrible, terrible news. Uh, and obviously, you've got the, the Nantes players trying to pull to better, together as best they can. I think they deserve their touch of fortune uh, midweek against Juventus with that, uh, you know, with that penalty decision that was overturned at the very last minute. But, you know, yeah, I, w- I would love for Nantes, you know, to write another famous European night at home in front of what is bound to be uh, a superb atmosphere. It just does feel like this Nantes side are, are starting to tire a little bit, which is to be expected. You know, there are many French sides who have struggled to balance sort of the domestic and continental aspects uh, as, you know, Nantes are discovering at this moment in time. And just hopefully up against, a you know, a vulnerable Juve side as well. Uh, you know, they can perhaps, uh, you know, pinch the results. Understandable that Bless was, uh, you know, um, rested for this one, given how key he is. You know, he's really emerged as that talismanic figure uh, for Nantes. And, you know, fingers crossed they can produce that 90 minutes that they will need, uh, you know, to to get past Juve. I don't think it's impossible, but normally getting that kind of result comes at a cost and perhaps that defeat to a, a superior alongside, we can say, you know, with, without a shadow of a doubt uh, is perhaps, you know, sort of the logical outcome uh, in order for not to be at the level they need to be on Thursday. Elsewhere then, Nice did draw nil-nil with Reims. They managed to uh, put the brakes on a Reims side who are now undefeated in 17 matches in all competitions underneath their Anglo-Belgian coach, who's just 30-odd years of age, will still... Mind you, Didier Digger is not much older and he's doing a fantastic job as well. That's unbeaten in seven since taking over the helm at Nice. And uh, there was a penalty miss in the last minute of that one as well. Kasper Schmeichel, who cast your mind back just about three or four months before the World Cup. There was so much talk that Schmeichel wouldn't be hanging around, that he was very unhappy at Nice, that it wasn't working out, that he wanted to leave. Now he looks like a key member of this side, the leader that they brought him in to be as well. 
and we spoke about it over the last couple of weeks, but that Nice project is starting to take shape. We may have to start talking about a Reims project, maybe, in uh, in weeks to come, depending on, on the deal they offer Will Still moving forward into years to come and how ambitious that club wants to be. Montpellier got up over Troyes. Now, there was a very harsh red card in this one for Teji Savigny. Um, it went to VAR. There was a little step on an ankle, but it was really, for me anyway, one of those ones where you where you just step by accident on a player. I'm not sure if Teji Savigny does anything like that by accident, though. He's a clever little player and uh, probably has a little history on the board as well, which may have worked against him on this one. But the week before, he put on such a masterclass that it had people wondering whether Teji Savigny wouldn't be, just for the, the history of it, a bit like giving Mikhail Pagis a run with, with Les Bleus, which they did back in the, in the early, well, late noughties, early teens of, of the 2000s. How about just giving Savigny one cap? Because it would just be brilliant for, for, for France and, and for those, those, those little history stories of football when you look back at a player that had so much talent, zero fitness, eight more McDonald's than Neymar. I mean, I mean, it was just, just, just incredible to think that he could be in with Le Bleu, and he is a class player anyway. Dzakarian got the job done um, by a goal to nil over a Trois side who are heading fast in the wrong direction. Strasbourg got up over Angers by two goals to one as well. Speaking of uh, Uncle Antoine, how about? Uncle Frederic Antonetti, who's back now in the top flight with Strasbourg. It must be about his 200th club in France that he's uh, taking over. He's had such great runs at Bastia and Metz over the years as well. Now at Strasbourg with a former Metz man, Habib Diallo. Perhaps no coincidence there getting both goals. That's 12 for him this season. And Strasbourg have climbed out of the drop zone. Um we talk about Dzakarian. Let's go very quickly. This is a, a bit off topic, but let's have a quick little coaching merry-go-round chat because there are so many of these coaches. And Matt Spiro, who's a, the the head of the league on commentators on on the World Feed and does a fantastic job promoting the game, he he talks with frustration about these Dzakarians, these Antonettis that just go around from one club to the next. The you know the sort of Luis Fernandez, although he's He's managed to hop off that merry-go-round, but Antoine Comboare, Eric Roy getting the job at, 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 at Brest must, I mean, Matt would be pulling his hair out if he could afford to. He's not got so much left <laughs> up top there now, Matt. But, but, Baptiste, what's your take on this uh, coaching merry-go-round and the fact that Antonetti, who, who has an incredible side story as well, more seriously, with the loss of his wife while he was at Mess as well, which was a... a terrible tragedy but now back in the top flight these coaches there is something to be said for it we've seen they can get a job done but but when you see youngsters like like will still come into the game and able to change the game didier digger at nice you just wonder should we not be giving a kid a chance yes i think is is the answer but i have to say liga has done that over the last few years you know regis lebris franquez uh, Julien Stéphane, Didier Digard, these are all young progressive managers. Before that, Christophe Galtier was a long time an assistant and was finally given his chance. I think it's 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 like in any league, frankly, because like we could probably roll off the likes of Sam Allardyce, 
David Moyes, uh, Eddie Howe, who's obviously doing better now, you know, Scott Parker, people who are being given a chance who have had a limited amount of success or maybe not been successful everywhere they've been. Uh, but with Antonetti, I think he's, you know, he's a bit like Comboire, frankly. He's a, he, yes, he is a safe pair of hands. His football is might be tagged as pragmatic, but he also uh, get what you see from Antonetti, which is he throws himself into the task. Um, he generates passions from his players and from his fans because he's a passionate individual. And ultimately, at the end of the day, in considering the situation Strasbourg are in, maybe they needed a little bit more of that. Is he is he the long term solution? I don't necessarily think he will be, and I don't necessarily think. He himself believes that he's going to be there necessary for the long term, but you know he's he's the he's the sort of manager who you need to sort of uh, tidy up a dressing room maybe a little bit and and give a give a bit of oomph to oomph to your club and uh, so far so far so good and uh, and these are you know these are people who are also um, widely respected but also. Uh, always kind of undermined a little bit in the press. You know, Antonetti has always been seen as a, a bit of a bully and his Bastia sides back in the day <laughs> were were dangerous sides to play against in, in more in many ways. Um, but but there's a lot more hard work that goes into it. And same same for you know same for Comboire. He's he's been he's they've achieved success in a lot of places. Um, measured success, but success nonetheless. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Ligue 1 World or Ligue 1 underscore English. Like, subscribe, follow, recommend on all your podcast platforms. It's time for your chance to try and win a Leo Messi Paris Saint-Germain shirt. It's the fourth and final quiz for the February set. We'll be announcing the winner next week, as well as a, a new month's competition starting up, but with two classiques in a month, we thought, what better time to give away the most wanted shirt in French football. So, you know the drill. You have to answer the question, who am I in Deja Vu? And also the bonus question. Now, last week's was very, very tough. I think uh, I've gone a little bit easier this way. And we, um, we've also, we've been talking more there or thereabouts as well um, as one of a general topic of conversation today. So... Who am I? I'm something of a cult figure in modern French football history. My career punctuated by temperamental outbursts, two-footed tackles, surprising transfers, moments of dizzying inspiration, and fittingly, I never won a Ligue 1 championship title. But I did win two Coupes de France and one Coupe de la Ligue. I played in a continental final and the UEFA Super Cup. Apart from a six-month spell overseas, I spent two decades gracing Ligue 1 and occasionally Ligue 2, playing over 600 professional matches before retiring at the age of 40. Who am I? And which of my goals is one of the most watched in Ligue 1 history, even if most people remember that someone else scored it? So there we go. He did actually score it, this player. But most people associate, it, associate this goal with another player. And that second question is actually a pretty big clue. There's one other big clue um, about the name of this player, but I couldn't, uh, 
I couldn't give it away so easily. So there we go. If you think you know who it is, send in your answers via email to the League Un Podcast at gmail.com. Um, Baptiste, they are, they are pretty tough. There's no <laughs> dates. You've got just, you know, general emotive clues in this one. Do you have, do you have any emotional response to who it could be? <laughs> Uh, it's this without it's, saying, of yeah, course. Yeah, it's the six hundred games and finishing at forty that I'm trying to wrap my head around. But uh, yeah, 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 he did. He just wouldn't stop. <laughs> it was quite quite remarkable. He just kept going. I think he tried to re- retire actually once, um, and maybe another time he had a season out, but still came back. So he could have been pushing seven hundred. I think what's the record for the most number of league un matches? Ettori, it must be... Oh, no, it's uh, Londro. Beat him, didn't he? Like 631 or something? Off the top of my head. But it's... uh, Well, this... uh, this Including Ligue 1 and Cup and everything else, we're we're well over 600 career matches in France as well. And I'm not a goalkeeper. There you go. Because I scored this incredible goal. A couple of incredible goals, actually. Go check it out. JJ? Yeah, very interesting. I mean, I've got a couple of ideas, so uh, obviously I'm not going to give anyone any clues, but uh, I don't know. I'm going to go away and check after we finish recording, see uh, you know, see see if it is who I think it is. But uh, no, actually, funnily enough, on the on the trivia topic, just quickly, because uh, Baptiste mentioned uh, Thomason earlier, I only realized the other day he's a player who's never played for France at any level, at youth level, but actually qualifies for Croatia through his mum. So I was always curious to know if Croatia had maybe looked at him as like, I don't know, maybe some sort of like squad uh, option. And on the subject of Teji Sevanier, whether or not we see him playing for Le Bleu at senior level, he did rec- uh, represent France at the Olympics. So there has been Teji Sevanier at international level of some description. That's true. So fantastic. Alongside Andre Pierre Gignac. Ex- Exactly. Well. I mean, it was a very much a, a vibes uh, France Olympic team, but uh, you know, one that I think everybody woke up really early to tune into, just for the possibility that you might see one of those Savanier masterclasses or Gignac uh, channeling that crazy Tigres form that he has and uh, that penchant for for spectacular goals. Fantastic, JJ. Thanks for that reminder. Because and people that did see that, honestly. People that, that don't catch enough French football and don't get up in the middle of the night all around the world to watch Montpellier play, you are missing out because he is, he is a wonderful, wonderful footballer. Do. I, can only, I, can't, I can't stress it any more than that. Well, let's have a look to what's coming up in round 25 then of the season. We've got Lille versus Brest, Angers versus Lyon, Montpellier against Lens, Lorient, Auxerre, Ajaxio Trois, ooh, the game of fear, that one, my goodness. Clermont versus Strasbourg, Nantes versus Rennes in a, a big Brittany derby, which always gets the pulses racing out that way with all the cider they're drinking as well and crepes to uh, get ready for that one. Reims versus Toulouse, Monaco versus Nice. That's the Côte d'Azur derby between those best of enemies. And then, of course... It's the big one, Marseille versus Paris Saint-Germain. I'm going to ask you, gentlemen, where you would head on a bon voyage. JJ, what catches your eye? 
Uh, Surely it has to be one of the big two. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I definitely think you know you'll be spending your time in the the south of France coming up on the on the weekend. I mean, ob- obvious for obvious reasons. You know, I think most of us would pick uh, Stade Vélodrome just to be there for for another classique, especially one that seems like it could play such a pivotal role. Uh, you know, in the in the title race. Uh, you know, but that Mo- that Monaco Nice game is uh, really appetizing as well. So I guess I'll leave it to to Baptiste to talk a little more about OMPSG. <laughs> but uh, Monaco Nice, uh, you know, like like we said earlier, you know, Nice really seems to be uh, on the up and up under under Didier Digard. Uh, find it a bit bizarre that we're sort of talking as well about Ratcliffe and Ineos taking an interest in Manchester United at the same time. It feels like every Premier League club that's been made available, um, you know, Nice's ownership has, has seemingly been wanting to to bolt and and go and, and grab that club instead. But finally, when the project is is starting to take shape, obviously they they had that huge coup as well a couple of months ago where they managed to pinch uh, Jean Claude Blanc from the the very top of the PSG tree. Could be that, you know, some bright moments are right around the corner for, for Nice, especially, you know, with Gisolf, you know, overseeing the, the sporting project and Digar proving, uh, you know, to, to have the chops at, uh, at Ligue 1 level. So that's one I'm definitely going to keep an eye on because if Nice were to able to even hold Monaco potentially to a draw, you know, that brings in the likes of Lens, uh, you know, back into that uh, shakeup for Champions League spots. Baptiste, there was a carrot dangled there for you. Are you going to Are you going to nibble? <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm going to nibble, but I'm also going to mention um, Ajaccio 3 because that's that's a, also going to be a feisty atmosphere. Um, any game at Ajaccio, especially one that has a lot of lot at stake, is going to bring out the Corsican wild side, which uh, which is great. But obviously, yes, Le Classic Marseille PSG is always always brings one of the best atmospheres in Europe. I think. Um, this year really means something. Um, both sides have a have their clear strength and their clear weaknesses, and it's it's sort of finely poised because they kind of match each other well in, th- in those respects. And um, and you know Galtier, for him, he's a you know he's from the south. It means a lot to him. But now he's in the PSG dugout, so lots of little stories and crazy atmosphere in the stands. So yeah, that's the that's the inevitable one. I can't wait. Well, they are the two standout matches, certainly. The Côte d'Azur derby, which kicks off at 17.05 on Sunday evening. And then just, uh, what is it, about 120 kilometres across the across the Mediterranean coast, Marseille entertaining Paris Saint-Germain. My geography is not good as well, so if anyone wants to correct that, feel free. Um, there are a couple of other matches. Obviously, that Brittany derby, Nantes versus Rennes. It may depend a little bit on how Nantes go in midweek against Juventus, and if they can pull themselves up there, they would be riding a real high into that home match against Rennes. And you talk about bitter rivalries. That is one there, because for the history buffs among you, Nantes was for a long time considered the capital of Brittany, and still is, and and many people in Nantes would like... uh, They're now the capital of the Pays de la Loire area, and they would... uh, Many people in Nantes still believe that they are... Bretons, and that Nantes should be returned to be the rightful capital of Brittany, which, of course, at the moment, is Rennes. Otherwise, if you are not so much into history, but into a little bit more rock and roll, I think it's hard to go past Montpellier versus Lens, because that is a rock and roll match, if ever there was one. Anyway, that's it for us this week. 
I thank you very much, Baptiste and Jonathan, for joining us. Thank you to Stephen, our producer, as well. We'll be back in a week's time. Ian Holyman will be back in the hot seat to uh, unpack all the fallout, hopefully radioactive, from what could be an intense classique between Marseille and Paris Saint-Germain at the Orange Velodrome. We'll talk about all the consequences that will have on the title race. And we'll also be announcing the winner of the Lionel Messi PSG jersey giveaway of February. Let's hope that you get your answers in for at least one of the uh, four quizzes we had this month that will throw you into the draw to try and win that jersey. And of course, in the meantime, stay up with everything that is Ligue 1 on the official Ligue website. You've been listening to the official Ligue 1 podcast. Le Bourgeois, thank you very much, gentlemen. And we'll see you again next week. Lovely finish. Ajax delivery. Gendouzi's header. Here's an opportunity. Sanchez. Outrageous goal from Gael Kakuta. Bayern again. Adolberg. Messi again. This time maybe Messi's done it.